Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Psalm 75? Psalm 75, I mentioned on the sermon card, uh, Psalm 75 is this week, and then it's noted that it's one of, I think, four uh, selected psalms that we'll work through. Tom's going to take the latter three of those later as I'm going to jump into Ephesians next week, but I wanted to begin our series of selected psalms this morning with Psalm 75, which if you have a red Bible, is on page 487, 487. And if you're able, I want to invite you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Psalm 75, the superscript to the choir master according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, would you help us now? As we hear your word, would you allow the preaching of your word, as has been prayed, to be a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power? But also as we hear Would you enable your word to sink deep in our hearts, to be like a seed that is being planted in good soil, that will be rooted deep, that will change us, that will help us to become a people who trust you more and love you more and rest in you more and find ourselves more and more thankful to you. May praise overflow from our hearts toward you because of what you have shown us in this psalm. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm getting a little bit of an echo behind me. I don't know if this is still on or, uh, or what, but a little bit of an echo behind me. Well, I'm going to begin the sermon on Psalm 75 this morning exactly where you think I would begin it by referencing an obscure offering in Deuteronomy 14. You can blame this on the fact that uh, Spencer and, and, and me, a little bit, uh, are going to teach a class coming up in Sunday school on giving, and so I've been looking at all these texts about giving, and Deuteronomy 14 is one of them. But anyway, here's the obscure offering. In Deuteronomy 14, every Israelite was instructed under the law to set aside 10% of everything. Everything that the Lord provided them that year. 
If their cattle had calves, they were to take 10% of those calves and set them to the side. Their oxen, the same. Their goats, the same. Their sheep, the same. Their grain, their oil, their wine. And they were to set aside 10% of what the Lord gave them that year. And then, with that 10% offering, they set aside all year long, they were to take it to Jerusalem. And what they were to do, once they got all of that, cattle, oxen, sheep, goat, oil, wine, grain, etc., once they get all of it to Jerusalem, they were supposed to get there and eat it and drink it as an offering to the Lord. They were to have the feast to end all feasts without offering. And it gets better. If the Lord blessed them so much that when the time came, they looked around and they said, there is no way on earth I could get all these cattle and all these oxen and sheep and goats and grain and oil and wine. There's no way I can get all of this to Jerusalem. The Lord had a backup plan. He said, if that's the case, I want you to take all of it that you have and I want you to sell it, to cash it in. And then head to Jerusalem with a wad of cash. And then when you get to Jerusalem with your wad of cash, I want you to take that and I want you to buy whatever your heart desires. Whatever your appetite craves, buy it. And then I want you with whatever you buy to eat and drink as an offering to the Lord. Can you imagine what kind of feast that would be? I mean, if you took 10% of your annual salary this year to set aside for a feast, that is an impressive feast. I mean, if you're like me, the kind of guy that just says, you know, when you sit down to eat, I don't know, I mean, the chocolate cake sounds good, but so does the carrot cake. Red wine? Uh, Maybe the white. The answer is yes. Yes, this is not a feast for choosing. This is a feast of celebration. And interestingly, the Lord wanted everybody on it. I mean, even the Levites who didn't have land, they wouldn't have had grain, they wouldn't have oil, they wouldn't have had wine, they wouldn't have cattle. The Levites, the widow, the sojourner, the orphan, all of those who would have missed out on that, who you think would be sitting on the roadside every year going, you guys have a great time in Jerusalem, but that's going to be really good. You dropped a little grain, I'll eat that, you know. Well, the Lord provided for them too. He said to everybody in Israel, every third year, take an extra 10% and set it aside. Because the Levite and the widow and the orphan and the sojourner, they're going to get that. And they're going to feast with you. Now, why? Why did God prescribe them to take 10% of everything as an offering, give it to the him, who would then give it back to them so that they could feast like there is no tomorrow. Why would God do that? Let me read to you specifically why God says in Deuteronomy 14, 23, after Moses commanded them to do this, he says, you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. They were to feast like you cannot imagine so that they might learn to fear the Lord 
always. How does that work? Well, fearing God is the idea of recognizing God as He is. As humans, we so often want to fail to recognize the holy, awesome nature of God. But the one who rightly fears God, rightly reveres who He is, stands in awe of who He is. And so, so often we think of fearing the God as the one who is going to judge, and that's right. The one who is holy and just, and that's right. But it seems with this offering, God also wanted them to recognize who He is as the good and gracious and generous God. I think the idea being that nine months out from that feast, when you were sitting around at the kitchen table with your family one night, and somebody was going, good grief, we got this coming up. And how are we going to provide for that? And we got this need, and and, and how in the world is that need going to be met? That somebody at the kitchen table, hopefully the dad, would say to the family, hold on a second, hold on a second, everybody. Before we get so consumed with our fretting and our anxiety, just stop for a second and remember that feast. Why did God have us eat that feast? So that we might learn to revere who He is the gracious, good, and generous God who meets our needs. That's why they ate the feast. Now, what kind of God is it who prescribes that for His people? What does it say about God that He says, this much, I want you to know that I am good towards you, that I am generous towards you, that I am gracious, that I want for you, that I'll provide for you and care for you and love you and meet your needs. That kind of God is exactly the kind of God that would prescribe this feast. But He's also the kind of God who gives to us, not just Deuteronomy 14, but several other texts in the Bible that are written, I think, we might say just using the language of Deuteronomy 14, that are written for us that we might learn to fear God, that we might recognize God as being the God whom He is and all His glory and all His grace and all His impressiveness. And Psalm 75, I think, is one of those psalms that by the time you get to the end of meditating on this psalm, we should feel that as if we have reason after reason after reason to trust in God, to rest in God, to thank Him, to praise Him, to be consumed and overwhelmed with just how gracious and good and glorious He is. That's what Psalm 75 does for us. It holds up those realities. Now, I want to show that to you in the psalm, but before we dive in, let me just give you a, a few details just to kind of orient us to the psalm. The psalm, it says in the superscript, is written by Asaph. Now, this may be the Asaph who was with David. It may be another Asaph. I, I don't know. Um, I don't think it matters if we can peg down exactly who Asaph is. The psalm was written by him. Another detail I'll note, but I don't think it affects our understanding of the psalm, is that it's according to, according to the superscript, do not destroy That's a reference, I think, to a tune they would have known. Just as you write songs and you title songs, there would have been certain tunes that were composed, and those tunes would have also uh, been noted, labeled, titled with certain titles as well. And so it seems probably that uh, among the psalms, the tune, Do Not Destroy, was a tune that you could sing multiple psalms to. It seems like 
the Psalms are probably, I don't think the Psalter ever became Israel's hymn book, but it does seem that the Psalms were, were oftentimes composed for something like a choir to sing. And so the choir would receive instructions, sing it according to this tune. You, you have notes like you see at the end of verse 3, say law. It seems like some kind of musical note, perhaps at this time pause. At this point in your singing as a, as a choir and you're performing, maybe reflect on this reality. Maybe it meant this is time for a cymbal solo or something like that, right? We, we don't know exactly what all the musical notes were. But I don't think recognizing who Asaph is, or even that the title of the tune is Do Not Destroy, necessarily helps orient us to understanding the psalm. One thing that I think does, though, is its location right here in the Psalter. You see, Psalm 73 through Psalm 83 are all written by Asaph. It's as if the person editing the Psalter took all of Asaph's psalms and put them together right here in an orderly way. And I do think there's a certain logic to the way they develop. In Psalm 73, we looked at this not too long ago. You may remember Psalm 73 is the psalm where Asaph says, my foot had almost slipped. I'd almost stumbled. Asaph's knees had almost buckled. He was a leader among the people of God. And he almost came to the point of saying, God, I don't know if I can keep obeying you. I don't know if I can keep following you. And the reason he was struggling so much, he says in Psalm 73, is because when he looked out, the wicked were prospering like crazy. And he was struggling. His affliction was ever before him. And so when he envied the wicked, when he, when he, when he coveted what they had, he, he almost thought it's just not worth it anymore to walk in obedience to Christ. And then he says in Psalm 73, but it was at the point that I entered the tabernacle, the temple, that he realized the truth. He said, it was in that moment I realized, I was reminded of judgment. Why would you envy the wicked when they're going to face the judgment of God? And so all of a sudden, Asaph's heart shifts, which brings us to Psalm 74. Psalm 74 then, in Psalm 74, Asaph begins this psalm asking God, why do you cast us off forever? So now he's in another state where he's looking out and the wicked are triumphing over them. This could be a reference to Babylonian captivity when when Israel was, was led off into captivity. I don't know exactly the reference of Psalm 74, but nonetheless, at the end of this psalm, having contemplated the judgment of the wicked in Psalm 73, he ends Psalm 74, look in verse 22, he ends Psalm 74 saying, Arise, O God, defend your cause, remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day, do not forget the clamor of your foes. The uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Asaph's saying, God, I don't know what's going on, but look around. Look at what your enemies are doing. They're mocking you all day long. They're deriding you. They're oppressing your people. God, judge your enemies and save your people. That's the call of Psalm 74. Psalm 75, I think, is God's answer. To Asaph's request, you're going to see that much of Psalm 75 speaks of God saying, I will judge the wicked. But what Psalm 75 does for us then, as we look at it, seeing this answer to Asaph's prayer, is Psalm 75 reminds us of who our God is so that we might rightly fear him, so that we might fear him in every sense, remembering, yes, his judgments, yes, his holiness, but also his goodness, his grace, his love, his compassion for us. 
And so this morning, what I want to do is I just want to note four things that this psalm shows us about our God so that we might grow in resting, trusting, loving, obeying, thanking, and praising Him. Number one, we're reminded in this psalm that God has shown us great grace. God has shown us great grace. This is where the psalm opens, verse 1, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. Now, my guess is everything about verse 1 makes sense except for one phrase. We give thanks to you, O God, that makes sense. We give thanks, that makes sense. In fact, the end of verse 1, we recount your wondrous deeds. He's thinking about all the good, the wondrous things God's done for them. He's recounting them. He's going over them. That makes sense. The phrase, my guess, that doesn't make sense is the very end of that second line. For your name is near. That's just not the way we speak, is it? We don't speak of someone's name being near us. So what is Asaph saying here when he says about God, your name is near? near. Well, think back to when God decided to reveal His name to His people. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses had witnessed something that was horrendous. He had had gone up to Mount Sinai. He had been given the tablets of stone, the law of God, He had gone to bring it down to his people, and when he was bringing it down to the Israelites, the Israelites themselves were engaged in idolatry and sexual morality. They had formed a golden calf and begun to worship it. There's their idolatry. The text also says they rose up to play. I think that's probably a reference to their sexual morality. This was a horrendous scene that Moses walked down and saw. And so as he walked down and he saw the Israelites engaged in idolatry and sexual morality, he took the tablets of stone that God had given them and he broke them. And God, in fact, said to Moses, I'm going to get rid of this people. I'm done with Israel. I'll start over with you, but I'm done with them. And Moses pleaded with God. He interceded with God. Please, God, he said, do not destroy this people. Remember your promise to Abraham and and Isaac and Jacob. So God said, fine, I won't deliver, I won't destroy them, I'm going to let them go on, I'm going to keep marching you guys toward the area you're going to go, but I tell you what, my presence will not go with you, you're on your own. Again, Moses interceded, God, please, the only thing that sets us apart, he said, on the face of the earth is that, is that your presence is with us. What makes the Israelites different from the Egyptians, except that God is with Israel? So God says, fine, my presence will go with you. But it's as if at that point, Moses thought, I've kind of gotten everything that I've wanted, everything that I've asked for, and yet I still have to lead these stiff-necked people. How in the world am I going to go on? And so he made one more request to God. He said, God, will you show me your glory? And what's interesting is when God answers that request from Moses, God, will you show me your glory? God's answer isn't, in particular, I will show you my glory. What he says in Exodus 33, 19 is this. Listen to God's answer. I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. God's answer is, I'm going to pass by you 
and proclaim to you who I am. I'm going to let you know something that all the other nations of the earth do not know. I'm going to let you know my name. I'm going to let you know my character. And then as God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passed by some, the text says in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, that is Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. God's revealing to them who he is. And then he adds this, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. As God passed by Moses, he revealed to him his name, meaning his character. This is who I am. And what he was saying in essence is, this is who I am toward you. To you, I am the God whom you know. I am your God and you are my people. Israel alone had God said that to in the Old Testament. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4, Moses would ask, what great nation is there who has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? God said, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I'm going to let you know my name. I'm going to let you know who I am. And so when Asaph opens Psalm 75 and he recounts the wondrous deeds of God, how God has been so gracious to Israel again and again and again, Asaph reflects on that and he says, this is God's name being near to us. This is God and all of his glorious character making himself known to us as our God again. And again, and again. Now what's so amazing about that is that when God decided, I'm going to make myself known to you so that I might be your God and you my people, he had done that as Israel had been involved in the grossest kind of immorality. It's not only that they fashioned the calf or that they were committing sexual immorality. You know what they said to that calf when they brought that golden calf out and they fashioned it, according to Exodus 32, 4, they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's what they had said about this golden statue when God had so graciously brought them out of slavery. We might be tempted just kind of sit back and judge Israel a bit and go, good grief, guys. You better write a psalm like Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God, for your name is near because we by no means deserve it. We have been horrendous. And yet, brothers and sisters, isn't our situation exactly the same? For one, if you're a believer... It's because God has made himself known to you. You weren't chasing after him. The text says there's none who seeks God. No, not one. In his loving grace to you, not because of anything you've merited, he set his affection on you. And said, I will be his God. I will be her God. And he, she will be my child. When Aaron last week quoted uh, Romans chapter 8 saying, 
uh, all the things. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is the one who, who justifies us, who can condemn? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of those realities are true about us, not because we did anything to deserve it or to earn it or make it happen. It's all because God, simply in his love for us that we did not deserve while we were enemies, said, I will be your God and you will be my child. And so just as Asaph says, we thank you, O God, for your name is near. We know that you are committed to us and we are your people. And we reflect on your wondrous deeds that shows that reality. We give you thanks. We can say the same of ourselves. God has shown us great grace. But that's not the only reason we're given in the psalm for resting and trusting in Him. We also see number two, that God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over all things. By sovereign, we simply mean God is in control. God is in control of all things. He is sovereign over all things. In verses two and three, you can see that Asaph has spoken in verse 1, it seems. Well, in verses 2 and 3, God begins to speak. You can tell it because the pronouns change. In verse 1, we give thanks to you, for your name is near. In verse 2, you can see the pronouns turn into I. God has now begun to speak. And here's what he says in verses 2 and 3. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Now, there are two truths that come out in verses 2 and 3 that both remind us that God's in control. The first one is there in verse 2 that God has appointed a time when He will judge the earth in equity. In other words, what verse 2 is saying is that God has already fixed the time. Before the foundation of the world, God appointed the day in which he would judge the world in righteousness. What this means is, God isn't reacting like we are. In our day, don't we do this? We look around and we see all the evil that's happening around us, and at some point we go, good grief, God, we can't take anymore. How long till you judge the earth? Surely now is enough. Surely, it being like legal that men go into women's restrooms, like that's finally getting you to go, ah, that's enough. But verse 2 says, no, 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 don't think of it that way. God is not reacting to anything. God from the beginning has fixed, has appointed a day in which he will judge the earth. It is set. If you can say it this way, it's been put on his calendar from before the earth began, and nothing will change it. Nothing will speed it up, nothing will slow it down. The day is set, it is appointed. God is in control. And when he judges, it will not be because he said, I finally had it up to here. It will be because he is the sovereign God who judges exactly at the moment he knows is best and right. Part of his delay is grace, in order that you may have time to repent. Part of his delay we know from the book of Revelation, is so that more saints might shed their blood. Part of his delay is that the enemies of God might store up greater wrath for themselves, but God's day is set. He is sovereign. We can trust and rest in that. But the other reality we see in verse 3 is that God is upholding the earth every second we're here. 
In verse 3, he says, When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. It can feel from our perspective like the earth is spinning out of control. Everything is going wrong. I mean, can you imagine when, when, when Babylon rose to power and they're doing all kinds of atrocities? Probably people are sitting around and saying, this is it. They're going to destroy the world. Well, Babylon's gone. Why? Because it's God who upholds the pillars of the earth and steadies them. When the Nazi regime rose to power and all the world was engaged in war, it might have felt at that moment the world was going to be destroyed, but God upheld the earth. He steadied its pillars. We might say the same thing even with the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? When, when you could look around and think to yourself, surely we're going to destroy ourselves with nuclear power. Why did that moment not come about? Why have we not self-destructed? It's not because we're not as evil or as foolish as we could be and destroy the world. It's because God is sovereign and He's setting the earth and upholding its pillars. There's something about evil that sends the earth into chaos, but our sovereign God steadies it. And so though it may feel to us like evil is driving the world so that it is spinning out of control, God reminds us, I am in control. I am sovereign, and I'm upholding it. Every day, that atrocities don't destroy everything around us, we should take note it is because God steadies the earth. He is sovereign. He's fixed a day when he will judge the earth. He steadies the earth. He is our sovereign God. Now, we take these two truths already we've seen. God is gracious toward us. He has decided to make his name known to us, to make us his own, to declare he is our God. And that God who is committed to us is the sovereign God who is in control of all things. You see already how this psalm is, is providing for us foundations for trusting in God, for resting in Him. And yet it doesn't stop there. Number three, we see that God will judge the earth. God will judge the earth. We've already seen that in verse 2, but in verses 4 through 8, it is spelled out explicitly. In verses 4 and 5, first God gives a warning to those who would dare challenge him, who would rise up against him. He says in verse 4, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. The idea of lifting up your horn is as if he's shaking your fist at God. I will challenge you. God is saying from heaven, don't you dare do it. Don't you lift up your haughty neck. Don't you lift up your horn. I will judge you. On an elders retreat, one time Nathan told us that the care center where he is there protecting homeless women and children, that he oftentimes goes over in his mind just a scenario if they're attacked, if he has to defend himself in the home, if he has to shoot. And he said, I often go over the same kind of thing again. I, I say to myself as I'm thinking about it, I'm an old man. I'm scared. I'm going to shoot you. If you try to attack the care center, you're going to get shot. And Nathan's not going to be prosecuted. Everybody's going to say, he was saying very clear, I'm scared, I'm an old man, I want to shoot you. They had fair warning, right? And now they're dead. Because Nathan doesn't bluff. Neither does God. 
Right? That's what verses 4 and 5 are saying. God is saying to people, don't you dare continue in your rebellion. Don't you dare lift yourself up to us. I've heard unbelievers make all kinds of statements. Like, how dare God? Or on the day of judgment, I will say, I have news for you. Do not rise against him. Do not raise your horn. Do not stiffen your neck. You will not stand. God gives warning in verses 4 and 5, and then in verses 6 and 7, Asaph, it seems, begins speaking again. We have, we have another shift as if God's now spoken of in, in third person again in verses 6 and 7. For from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness, comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Asaph says, I want you to understand, because God is the sovereign God who will execute judgment, don't think that when you see things happen in the world, one is put down and another is lifted up. Don't think that it's by accident. Nor, I think, is he suggesting to his people, look to your earthly peers for hope. Right? When you need God to deliver you, it's as if Asaph was saying to Israel, don't look to the east and don't look to the west. Don't look to the wilderness. Don't look to all these areas and say, who will deliver us, for example, against the Assyrians? Maybe we should go down to Egypt to make an alliance with them. Maybe they'll help us. Asaph is saying, no, 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 no. Why would you do that? God is going to judge all of the wicked, the Assyrians and the Egyptians. Your help comes from him alone. He is the one who puts down and lifts up. Now, I know the temptation in our day isn't to do the same thing. I'm not going to tell anybody today, do not run to Egypt and get horses, <clears throat> because I know that's not your temptation. You're not thinking, good grief, I'm glad you said that. I had something scheduled for this afternoon. <laughs> Quick trip to Egypt to get horses. <clears throat> I, I know that's not your temptation, but I do think our temptation is often to look around and decide those with whom we will align ourselves for the sake of seeing ourselves lifted up. Even as kids, we do this, don't we? You know the reason, let me just say to the young people, <clears throat> you know the reason that you are tempted to identify yourself with individuals who are living lives that are dishonoring to God? It is because you do not trust God to lift you up. And you think you need to align with them. Those who are rebelling against Him, maybe they will lift me up. And so that's why you go after the individuals that are pursuing being cool, And as I said so many times, for young people, the pursuit of coolness is a pursuit straight to hell. But the habits you're developing today are going to shape the rest of your life. And so you're pursuing individuals whom you think will lift you up as opposed to just trusting in God. God, I will do what is good. I will obey you. I'll reach out to the sojourner, I'll reach out to the one who is neglected, and I will trust that you lift me up, not them. And we can do that as adults too. But it's God who says to us, I'm going to judge those individuals. Why do you align yourself? Why do you look to the east and the west? I'm going to judge. In fact, Asaph speaks of God's judgment in strong ways in verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Asaph says God's going to judge them. He's going to take the cup of the wine of his wrath, and he's going to make them drink it down all the way to the last drop. 
Now, my guess is that when we read something like this, we might have a little bit of hesitation in our heart to say something like, amen, right? I mean, I think there's something in our heart that doesn't quite resonate. We don't read verse 8, God's going to make the nation, his enemies, drink of the cup of his wine of his wrath down to the dregs. There's there's something in our heart that's a bit hesitant to go, yes. But let's examine a few things as we think through that. One, if that is the case, we can find believers throughout all the Bible who are looking forward to God's day of judgment. I've been reading recently, just my Bible reading, First and Second Samuel. Remember when Hannah is, can see she's, she's uh, not able, she's barren, not able to have children. The Lord blesses her with Samuel. She realizes she's pregnant. She, she goes to pray. She says in First Samuel 2.10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Hannah is given a child in her womb that she prayed for, and when she praises God in celebration, she reflects on the fact that God is going to judge his enemies. He's going to tear his enemies to pieces. Mary, similarly, the Christ child in her womb, and she prays and speaks of God, casting down the wicked from their thrones. In Revelation 6, the martyrs are before the throne. I think the martyrs probably represent in that point all believers. The martyrs are before the throne. You know what they're praying to the Lord? How long until you judge our enemies? How long until you, you vindicate your name, until you vindicate our cause? And then... In Revelation 15, when their prayer is answered in the text that that Clint read earlier, and the last word of judgment is about to fall and the enemies of God are going to be destroyed, it is the saints who are standing on the side of the sea, singing the song of Moses and singing the song of the Lamb, praising God and celebrating As the angel of God says, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. There's a clear note from beginning to end of the people of God praying and longing for the day of judgment. One reason I think we have trouble resonating with that reality is because we have not faced intense persecution. The last 300 years in the United States have been an exceptional time for the history of the church. I'm not sure it's going to continue. Lily and I were talking the other day and and, and noting that when we grew up, that was always said to us. I think in your lifetime, you're going to see worse persecution than us. And now I'm sitting around saying that to my children. So is it true, or is it just something we always say to everybody? I think it's true. Last year, when Lily and I and the kids were on sabbatical up in Louisville, I remember listening to Greg Gilbert at Third Avenue Baptist Church preach in Louisville, saying that one of his church members who's taught school had begun referring to every student simply by their last name. Because he feared the day when one of his students wanted to be pronounced, be called a name that was different than his or her gender, and that he would get fired if he refused. 50 years ago, it would have been crazy to suggest to you 
that you may be fired or not able to get a job because of your allegiance to obey Jesus Christ. I don't think anyone is thinking that's crazy now. And we'll see what the future holds. We have an enemy who is ruthless and seeking whom he may devour. So I think, yes, things will intensify here, but they are true that, that this is what the church has faced for years. I read a story this week of an individual named Billy, almost certainly not his real name. He was born into a religious Muslim family. In fact, his dad was known and revered in the community as an individual who had memorized the Quran. Billy got an English Bible and started reading it without his parents knowing. Three years into reading his Bible, he's converted. He lets it be known to his family, and instantly there are threats against him. He's attempting to live in that tenuous setting when he finds another Somali believer six years later. Six years after he's converted, he finds another Somali believer. Together, they begin gathering other believers together to form an underground church until finally there are 14 of them, hiding out, worshiping the Lord in private until some Muslims found out about the underground church. And they begin killing them. Their deaths begin mounting. One was shot to death. One was kidnapped and executed. There's a couple who was killed in their bedroom. One was taken off a bus in broad daylight, executed right there. By the time the dust had cleared, 12 of those 14 believers meeting in that underground church were dead. Billy and one other alone survived because they fled the country. None, none of their persecutors were prosecuted. I imagine that if the day comes that you see your spouse and your children being dragged off to be executed because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ, you will not struggle in reading Psalm 75.8. God will judge his enemies. And I don't think it's right. We are right to say, but Jesus told us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is exactly right. And we should. And when we pray for their repentance, and when we pray for their salvation, do not think that praying for their repentance and praying their salvation somehow dismisses the notion of judgment. It doesn't. The only reason anyone can be saved is because the Lamb of God bore divine judgment for you. It's going to go one of two ways. This cup of the wine of God's wrath, either you're going to repent and believe in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, in which case Jesus drinks down the cup for you. That's what happened in the garden. Let this cup pass for me, but if there be no other way, your will be done. And there was no other way. And so on the cross, Psalm 75, verse 8, was fulfilled for you and me. The cup of the wine of God's wrath that you and I should have drunk down to the dregs because we were as evil as the day is long. He drank it down for us to the last drop so that there is none left over for us. But if you do not bow the knee to him, if you do not repent and believe and trust in him as your only hope, you will drink that cup yourself. But one way or another, God's judgment will be satisfied. And so this is what we long for. This is what we pray for. The day that, that, that the Lord will return and he will bring judgment and salvation. Yes, it is, a, it is a terrifying day. That is why when we sing and it is well, we speak of the Lord descending and we say, even so, even though it is so terrifying, 
Even so, it is well with my soul. Because Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God for us. We trust, we rest, we thank and we praise God because he's gracious to us, because he's sovereign, because he's going to judge the earth. And then finally, number four, God deserves our praise. This is where the psalm ends, verses 9 and 10. The psalmist declares, Asaph declares, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I'll cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. As Asaph reflects on the fact that God is going to rescue his people and judge his enemies, he says, I will praise God, sing his praises, and declare his greatness forever. Brothers and sisters, I don't think that Psalm 75 is a lot different than that feast offering in Deuteronomy 14. I think it's written for us that we may learn to fear the Lord. That we may learn to see God for who He is. And when you reflect on the fact that God has, by His grace, made you His own. That the God who loves you and has made you His own is sovereign over the earth, appointing a day of judgment and steadying the earth's pillars. That the God who loves you will bring judgment against His enemies and yours and save you on that final day. Isn't it obvious that this God is to be praised and that we are those who must praise Him. And therefore, I think Psalm 75 calls us to trust Him, to rest in Him, to thank Him, and to praise Him. And one gift the Lord has given us, week by week, so that we might be reminded again of why He can be trusted and we can rest in Him, and that why He should be thanked and praised, is he's given us another meal. Now, it's not quite a feast that 10% of your annual salary would buy. But it's just a shadow. Because we got a feast coming in the wedding supper of the Lamb that's going to make that Deuteronomy 14 feast look like a snack. With the choicest of fat meats and the best of wine. And it's going to be ours. And death is going to be swallowed up forever, never to mess with us again, because the Lamb has been victorious. And so this meal we have here, which is quite light, small cup and a small piece of bread, is reminding us week by week, oh, there is so much more to come. But this meal says to us, we can trust Him. For when we had our greatest need, he did not simply meet us by giving us cattle and oxen and sheep and goats and wine and oil and grain. When we had our greatest need of rightly standing under the judgment of God, his son lived for us and died for us and was raised for us, drinking down the cup of the wine of the wrath of God for us so that we might be made his children. And so this morning, if you are a believer and you have professed your faith in Christ, you've, you've made uh, your faith known by being baptized. You're a member of a gospel-preaching church. We want to invite you to come and eat with us this morning. The way we eat is we take a moment of silence to let the musicians get in place, to let the pastors get in place, and then we dismiss row by row, and the, the first row comes forward, exiting on the outside, coming around. You'll grab one stack of two cups. The top one is juice, the bottom one bread. You'll take it back to your seat, entering your row to the inside. The second and third and fourth row will follow. There's a pastor here for this side, a pastor for this side, a pastor there for the overflow area to my left. 
And then we'll all eat and drink together. And if ever our hearts this afternoon or this week are gripped with fretting or anxiety, how will this need be met or that one? We will remind ourselves, remember that meal that we ate. If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so we rest in the God of Psalm 75. If you're not a believer this morning, I ask you to abstain from eating this meal with us. Because by eating, we are saying that we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never placed your faith in him, then I'm asking you not to eat with us. But I want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ. If you want to talk to me or somebody else after the service, we would love to talk to you. But right now, where you sit, you can believe. Turn from your sins and trust that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is sufficient for you. Again, if you'd like to talk to me or perhaps the person sitting next to you after the service, feel free to do so. And then we're going to encourage you to make that faith public in baptism and then start coming to the table with us week by week. But this morning, let's prepare our hearts to eat together and learn to fear our good and gracious and loving and kind and compassionate God who gave his son for us. Let's take a moment of silence as we prepare to come to the table this morning.